Good morning. All right, we're back in the book of Romans. We're in lesson 11 today, and that is we're on justification has always been by grace through faith, part three. All right, we're in Romans chapter four, verses six to 25. It's a rather large section, but it continues the theme, which we've already seen in Romans chapter four, verses one to eight or so that we've been in. The whole chapter four, uh, God is using David and Abraham as the two examples, the two models of those who are saved by grace through faith in each of those ages. But as I thought about David and, and Abraham, I thought of their connected points too. Both of these guys are amazing worshipers. Their faith and their worship. They're like the primo example in the Old Testament of those who are really born again. And Abraham, living out that life of faith, the the high points of his faith, taking his son Isaac up on the mountain. And then David writing Psalm 23. If you just write Psalm 23, you've done everything in your life you need to do. You can just go straight to heaven at that point, right? But David has given us so many of the Psalms that we enjoy out of his worship and out of what God had taught him in his life. And just think of those two men, Abraham and David, as not simply, oh, they were justified and they were religious guys. But they knew the Lord. They worshipped out of a heart. And it was so beautiful. And when we talk about it, Abraham is called in the Bible the friend of God. And David is a man after God's own heart. So Paul's use of these two is not simply to explain to us that how do you get justified? But their very life show the results of it. And so they're easy examples in that regard to help us understand, hey, what does it really look like if we are truly saved? Uh, It looks like that. Failure sometimes. Miserable sin. Sometimes not doing exactly what you're supposed to do in both of these cases. And then a heart of faith, a heart after God, a desire to truly know him. And if you're a Christian in here today, you know both sides of that. You know the days when you're like, I thought I'd be a lot farther along by now. Yeah, I've been a Christian 45 years. I thought I'd been a lot farther along. But exactly. But then you have the pride of saying, I should have been longer along because I'm that kind of guy, (laughs) right? And then the heart is, (sighs) thank you, Lord. And as the saying goes, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. I am a sinner saved by grace. And God is good to me. And I'm not in a relationship with God because I'm good. I'm in a relationship with God because he's good. And that's the basis. So I put a lot of stuff in here today. So let's dive into the text and look at David's justification in this chapter. David was justified by grace through faith under the law. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into 
account or not credit to that person. What's beautiful about this passage is it's the plus and minus. Abraham is the plus side of credited righteousness. And that is Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, a plus into his account. But then this passage says, David tells us of the blessings of credited righteousness by talking about the negation or the minus sign. And that is, blessed is the man whose sins are not counted to them, but are given to someone else, essentially. So blessed is the person who believes and has credited righteousness, the positive side. And blessed is that person who's credited that righteousness, whose sins are credited to someone else. That is the beauty of this whole passage. If you look at my basic little drawing here in the middle, the plus and minus of justification. The plus side of justification, of course, is credited righteousness. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you look under that, under the word atonement, you see an arrow pointing up from Christ's perfect life. Christ's righteousness imputed to me. You see that on the left side. That's the plus side. What Christ did in his life in obedience to the law that we never did and that his perfect obedience of the life that I only wished on my best day that I could even have one day like, Christ did every single day of his life. And it is that perfect life in what theologians call active obedience. If you look at the bottom of the page, Active obedience is simply this, a term referring to Christ's perfect obedience to God during his earthly life that earned the righteousness that God credits to those who place their faith in Christ. That is only one side of the ledger, though, as we've talked about. If Christ was to take his perfect life and place it on the credit side of my life, I would still have the problem of the debt that I owe to God because of all my sins. They're not purged. They're not paid for they're not propitiated. They're not taken care of. They're not, we're not reconciled to God. And so I need both of those. I need my debts paid for, and I need Christ's righteousness on my account. And so the negative side, if you will, the negation of my sins off of me onto Christ. And that is what David has said. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Isn't that beautiful? He takes Christ's righteousness on my account. He takes my sins and puts them on Christ. And thus the arrow going down, my sins, bless you, my sins imputed or counted to Christ as if he had done those sins in my place. So this is all under the banner of atonement, the work Christ did in his life and death to earn my salvation. His atoning death is often called the passive obedience of Christ. What do we mean? That in his active obedience in his life, he, he determinately obeyed the law. He did those things positively, actively. But at a certain point, he's taken to the cross. He's passively put there. Now, scripture does tell us, Jesus says, hey, nobody takes my life from me. Right? I'm God. No, no, nobody's doing anything to me I don't want to happen. But he passively, as a lamb to the slaughter, it tells us, he gave himself to it like a lamb to a slaughter. And so that's often called the passive obedience of Christ. And simply at the bottom of the page, 
a term referring to Christ's sufferings for us in which he took the penalty due for our sins and as a result died for our sins. And so one last time today on imputation at the bottom of the page, to think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person, God thinks of Adam's sin as belonging to us and therefore it belongs to us. And in justification, he thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And so he relates to us on that basis. All right? Verses 6 to 8. What we're looking at in this whole chapter is the, the two distinct principles by which people think they can be saved. Okay, the principle of grace versus the principle of law. That's really the distinction in the New Testament. We think of grace versus works, or grace versus whatever, but the principle is the grace versus law. What do we mean? Which world are you living in? Which town do you live in? Do you live in the Do you live in the salvation town where you're giving out the gift of salvation? You're walking down the street. They're just giving it away all day long. Make a platter. Salvation. Salvation. You want some salvation? It's right here. It's free. Totally take it. Or do you live in Lawtown? Everywhere you go, you better be working for that. You better be earning that. You, get, you got that, right? You're working on that, right? That's the two principles in this chapter. You live in one of those towns, and they operate differently. The principle leads to an instrument. And the instrument under grace is faith. That's how the reception of grace is done. But in law town, the reception of law-based salvation is work. That's where you place those terms. That's why Paul will often say, interchangeably, he'll say, no one is saved by works. No one is saved by the law. By the principle or by the instrument. But then they lead to something, and this is where we're going in this chapter today. Grace is absorbed by faith, by grace, through faith, but it leads to a symbol in either covenant of that salvation that is external, but does not give you salvation. That is, under Abraham's covenant, we're about to learn again today, circumcision was not given to save Abraham, it was a picture to show that God was going to be faithful to his covenant on the grace side of the letter. Uh, add baptism to our day, right? It's an outward symbol of the inward reality. On this side, rites and rituals that are religious. It can be the same sign, but it depends on where your head is. You can live in Lawtown in a grace church. Right? But some of you got into grace side of the ledger in a law church. It's what God can do in the heart, even though the city that you're living in, it's like Pilgrim's Progress, how to flee out of there, right? And so in this, Paul is going to talk today about this very thing. How does law-keeping and works relate to what a person would think? Well, then they would think that circumcision and baptism and other symbols are part of your salvation because they're what you do as part of the system versus over here. It's simply a picture like wearing a wedding ring does not make you married. Right? 
Everybody knows that, right? <laughs> what? I had a choice? <laughs> Um, my brother, who was a ridiculously funny guy, uh, but he's home with the Lord, uh, he used to tell about the day he got married. I was the only witness at this marriage. It was the justice of the peace. Justice of the peace. And he often tells the story of how the real story, he said, hey, when I thought the guy said, does anybody have change for a 20? And he said, I do. And so, okay. <laughs> so it's like, it never happened, right? And I was like, wedding ring doesn't make you married. It's a symbol of that. The point is, the symbol versus the reality. But in law town, you think putting the ring on makes you a good marriage. It makes you whatever. Okay. That's where we're going today in Paul's conversation. So if you lose your ring, you're still, still okay. Still okay, man. Just don't leave it off very long. I was once at a trunk or treat event uh, at a church in California, and we had a dump tank. And so, yeah, never, never, never let the little kids throw rocks or I mean, ball at the dump tank with the pastors up there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You've done it here, haven't you? Man, I lost my wedding ring in the dunk tank. But I didn't notice it. You know, you're in there so long, it finally fell off. I didn't notice it that night. And at the end of the evening, I'm like, where's my wedding ring? And uh, we never found it. They looked through the stuff whenever. But uh, he's still married. <laughs> <laughs> in... in in a couple of weeks, it'll be 39 years. So, by the grace of God, Carla is a saint. Okay. All right. Page two. Let's look now at the very thing we're talking about, verses 9 to 12. That Gentiles and Jews are justified by grace through faith apart from religious rites or rituals. Okay. Verses 9 to 12. Here's what it says. In, is this blessing then that was just described under David and Abraham, on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also. For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. You mean you can get saved without being baptized? Yes. Can you be saved without giving money to the church? No. Right. Right. Don't be an antinomian. Okay. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision. The sign. Right? It's an outward sign. It's a symbol. It's a sign of something. He received the outward sign, as I say, the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. Read that again. He received the sign as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Do you see that? All right. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's why he's our father Abraham. The picture is just like ours. Saved before he's baptized. Saved before he does cool stuff. Saved before there's any rituals or rites or the law. We are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And so, 
I love this story. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited. Read the word them as you or me. That's what it's saying. So that all of us could see in the picture of Abraham what is true of ourselves. That we were saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of any of our good works, not of our religious heritage. In verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision. So he's the father of faith to us Gentiles. But what about to the Jew? To the Jew who believes he's the father of faith. Verse 12 again, and the father of circumcision to those who are not are not only, I'm sorry, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had, Paul wants to make sure you know, while he was uncircumcised. So we just come back up here to, Paul is talking to the person who lives in Lawville. Right? That's what this whole chapter is about. They're like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but we have to do this. And he's talking to this person, and he, now he's exercising down here. The whole chapter has done this. It's not the law, but it's grace. That was the first part of the chapter. Then he's gone through, and it's not by works, or else God would owe you something. Remember that part of the chapter? And he's already kind of negated that. Now he's down here. But what if we get the symbol? What if we do the rites? Yeah, that's not going to help you, man. That's, that's, that's not a thing. Okay? It's, it's pretty simple. And that's what Paul's doing. He's eliminating law, works, rituals as a way of salvation. He says, the only place to live is over here in Graceville. And if you move over to Lawville, that's what the book of Galatians is about. The book of Galatians is about those who said, oh, I get it. It's by faith. Yes. Plus works. It's by faith plus circumcision. That's what the book of Galatians is addressing. People who came over on this side of the ledger, but they walk around Gracetown going, I know it's by grace. I still gotta get the thing. And Paul takes the whole book of Galatians to say, I tell you, and we'll look at this verse, I tell you, if you receive circumcision, Christ is of no help to you. You cannot be saved with Christ plus the law. If you want to go to the Messianic movement today as a Gentile and start wearing all the fancy stuff and call people rabbi, Christ is of no help to you. Now, if you come later and go, no, no, you don't, mis you don't mis misunderstand the Messianic movement. Let's talk about it later. Much of it is Torah observant, they call it. Paul says in the book of Galatians, if you go back, Christ is of no help to you. Yeah, but we just, we're celebrating the, maybe, the book of Galatians. We'll do that one next, Lord willing. So let's look at these fancy drawings here, a few things. What Paul has done for us is he's talked about the history of redemption. That's what just happened. I'm all excited now. <sighs> All of this equals earning it versus receiving it. And what Paul's done for us is painted a picture in this chapter of 
under the law, before the law, after the law, it's all the same. But I want to address a couple of questions in that on the history of redemption that Paul is alluding to here. My first point is this. According to the book of Hebrews, the only way to please God is through faith. So faith has always been the instrument through which we've received God's gift. Hebrews 11 commends the faith of individuals who, number one, lived before the flood, number two, after the flood but before the law, like Abraham, and number three, under the law. If you ever take Hebrews chapter 11 and just put it into pieces, which I've done here, it looks like this. Creation, Abel, Enoch, and Noah are mentioned as pre-flood, but who receive favor from God and who acted in faith. And then it tells us Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, as people who live between the flood and the law. And then it goes into Moses, the walls of Jericho, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, uh, Samson, and Jephthah. Those are all people from the law to David. And then it mentions David and Samuel and the prophets. Hebrews 11 is laid out for us in that regard. And so they're just examples. <laughs> oh, of course it is. Thank you. You want to cut that out of the tape, right? Yeah. <laughs> Dave can't find his water. And so that's what it is. It's a history of redemption. It's a history of faith that it's always been how to please God is to simply believe what he says. Then, in Hebrews 11, a life acted on it, but it started with faith of justification. My second point, the Lord progressively revealed the details of the plan of redemption from creation until the close of the canon, which we now have. The scriptures are closed. In each age, justification has always been by grace through faith. But think about it. They didn't all have the same content, but they all had the same salvation principle. They were all saved by grace, but they didn't all know the same exact information. Their faith was put in over God said about his redemptive plan. Just look at these three guys I just illustrated. Abraham, if he was in here, he'd have to say, I had no Bible at all. But at different times, God would appear to me and speak to me. It was on that basis that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then David, who lived almost a thousand years after Abraham, he could say, my Bible contained the same five books that Moses had, as well as Joshua and Judges and many of the Psalms which I wrote. But David didn't have Isaiah. David didn't have Daniel. David didn't have the Minor Prophets. Never heard of those. David didn't have the New Testament, obviously. And yet he's justified. And then finally, I took John, the last living apostle of the New Testament age. And what he would have to tell us is, my Bible contained all of the Old Testament books and all of the New Testament books. Shortly before I died, God used me to write the last New Testament book, the book of Revelation. So he had a lot more information, and yet John is the person in the New Testament that says whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't love the other ones? John apparently was Jesus' best friend on the, on the team. The disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm looking at three men who at different ages, with different amounts of information, loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet they were sinners. And so I just refresh you at the bottom of the page. 
I just put in the illustration I gave a couple of weeks ago that in Romans, again, as we're saying, from creation till the law, Abraham is the example in this chapter, that under the law, David is the example, and then you and I are being spoken to about after the law, and that's chapter, that's chapter 4, verse 5. For him that does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's what this whole chapter is. Yeah, Julia. So, what they're having faith in is that God justifies the ungodly. For those like in Abraham's time, they didn't know Christ, but they knew something yes. God was going to provide somewhere. Absolutely, absolutely. Julia's question is uh, sort of a content question. How much did you're asking? How much faith in did, what? Yeah, faith in what? What was the content of saving faith? And in a few minutes, we're going to go a little deeper into it. But no, no, but, but I'll say, great question, because that's the implication. Abraham, John, David. What would they have had to believe to be justified? Is the content question. Um, they had to believe the word of God as it was, but what part of the word of God? My thinking, which I'm going to try to demonstrate to some degree, is that all of them, all of them are looking to the Messiah with more information than the other guy. So David, John clearly knows the whole story. He was there. Uh, David, though, is looking for a Messiah, and I'm going to try to demonstrate that, too. And I think that Abraham had knowledge of the coming Messiah from Genesis 3. I'm going to go through in a few minutes. What did they know? And I think they are looking for the Redeemer. I mean, even in Genesis 3 and 4, after the death, it looks like Eve is rejoicing that she's got that guy, the promised seed who's going to crush Satan's head. And that picture is the, the Old Testament. In my estimation, they're all saved with some knowledge, like Job who says, I know my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth. Well, where is Job in the story? Uh, Job is probably in this age. He's in the patriarch's age, right? So Job is living 2,000 years before Christ. He doesn't have the law. He doesn't have any information. Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. And he will stand on the earth. Right? So they knew a Redeemer story and that he was coming. But it was added to in each age until you finally have content to where now we have no excuse. Right? To whom much is given, much is required. We have the entire Bible. And that's why in Luke 16 we've used where Abraham says to the rich man across the divide, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they will not listen to them, they can't be helped. All right, good stuff. Yeah, Angela. Is it, is it too simplistic to just say, like in Romans 4.21, that they were just fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised in regard to faith? Angela, it's a great question. Angela's saying, is it, is it too simplistic to say that they, they just believe God, right? Essentially, I think what that verse, and I'm going to hope to try to show, is only talking about the quality of their faith, or the, you know what I mean, not the content of their faith, and that's where we have to kind of bring them together, and, and good and godly people disagree about this, you know, exactly what the content of saving faith was, as you know in the Old Testament, so, it's good. We know that they had to believe whatever God said, and he counted it as righteousness, but the marker for that is not always clear in the Old Testament. It's not always the same. Like Abraham looks up in the sky and he realizes he's going to have more kids on one level. And you're like, you can get saved by realizing you're going to have more kids. But it's what kid? 
and what was the promise. So it's good. All right, page three. <coughs> So again, looking at a timeline here, Abraham, in Romans 4, uh, it mentions Abraham and David, but what did the antediluvians know? Ooh, the antediluvians. Okay, 99.9% of you know what that means, but to the one person who's like, is this a cult? <laughs> All right, are we starting a cult? Uh, that means before the flood, the deluge. Before the flood. Like antebellum is before the war. Antediluvian is before the flood. What did the people before the flood know? How could they have been saved? I don't know if you've ever thought much about that. But uh, here we go. From creation to Abraham is about 2,000 years. And here are seven things I put down. How much spiritual light did the pre-flood world have? Number one, they had the witness of creation. We already know that from from Romans 1. Since what can be known about God was plain to them, they are without excuse. Number two, they had the witness of conscience. We already looked at that in Romans 2. What does that say? Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. They don't need tablets of stone. They already know it's wrong to murder and to dishonor your parents and to steal. Why? Because that's already in their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing and now even defending them. Even if we never had a Bible, we have creation and conscience and everyone is without excuse, the scripture says. But they had more. Number three, they had the promise of a redeemer, Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And it goes on, of course, in Genesis 3. Who's the he? God is telling Satan... Listen, he's coming. He's coming. Number four, they had the knowledge of a blood sacrifice, Genesis 4.4. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offerings. But on Cain, who brought the vegetables, it was like, see, that's why you can't be a vegetarian. (laughs) Proof in scripture. (laughs) Fat portions. If you go to Mission Barbecue, you get the fat portion. Right. You should, everybody in here should say, you should know, Dave. All right. All right. They knew about blood sacrifice. God had clothed them, of course. Number five, they had the preaching of Enoch. Jude tells us this. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way, and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Seventh from Adam is still preaching righteousness and the coming of someone who will judge them. They had the preaching of Noah, Second Peter. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, etc. It also goes on in this passage to talk about, some, some think that Christ went down and talked to the people in Hades afterwards, but I think it was the spirit of Christ preaching through Noah, is what this passage says, that in the days before the flood, the preaching of Noah was about righteousness, and presumably about a redeemer, of which the ark was only a picture. And they had the ministry of the Holy Spirit, let's never forget that. 
Holy Spirit was not like, oh, it's Pentecost? Okay, I can show up. <laughs> oh, is that my gig? <laughs> right? Uh, Genesis 6, 3. Then the Lord said, and this is regarding just before the flood and the nature that they did everything outrageous. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. That doesn't mean how long people will live. It's how many years it was before the flood. You got a 120-year countdown. That's still a mercy rule. But my spirit won't always contend with man. Well, that means he was contending with man. Convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Working with people. Having manifestations. Speaking to certain people. The spirit of God before the flood was active. They knew about those things. And these are only a few of them that we could give. Um, At the bottom of the page, I have attempted to put the very smallest font possible... Uh, I, I recently went to the eye doctor, and uh, I don't know why, but my prescription had changed. And for the first time in my life, I had to say, I don't know, are those in English? <laughs> so here we go. They're smaller out here. Paul, in all of his preaching and writing, has consistently taught circumcision as the sign of the covenant made with Abraham, namely the promise of a coming Messiah and salvation by faith in him. Let me read that little box. Physical circumcision was merely meant to be an outward symbol of an inward reality. Check. Abraham was saved before he was circumcised, thus demonstrating that circumcision is only a symbol. Check. And the underlined one, Paul opposed the Jews who were teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved. In Galatians, I read this. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision... Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. For those who want to go back to the Messianic movement and receive the symbols and signs and wear the little things, then you have just signed up for the whole package. Paul says, you want to to symbolize that you're under the old covenant? Go for it. Obey every single law. You don't get to choose. They didn't get to choose. In Lawville, you don't choose what the laws are. You don't go, well, I got my own version of this. Paul says, you want to do some of it? Do all of it. Okay. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. He's under obligation to keep the whole law. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. But faith, working through love. For I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, that is, if he still preaches under law camp, that you have to do all this to be saved, he says, why am I still being persecuted by the Jews? I'm not preaching that. Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. What is the stumbling block? That anybody can get in by grace, even Gentiles. The stumbling block of the cross is, I can't earn it. I don't get to have any boasting before God. It's a stumbling block. I have to admit I'm unrighteous and ungodly. That's the stumbling block of the cross. If we could earn any portion of it, the stumbling block goes away, as Paul says. That's been abolished. And now you're a superhero in your own salvation story. And your origin story is going to look a lot different than God's origin story for your life. I loved Jesus when I was little, and I've always obeyed. Jesus met that guy. He's called the rich young ruler. Remember? 
Rich Young Roller Kid. Hey man, I know what you're talking about. Uh, but I'm good. Because since I was a little kid, I've done all that. I'm in that world. He's used to that village. And guess what? He was one of the good guys in that village. Paul could say of himself, as far as law righteousness, Paul says of himself in Galatians, as far as the law went, and in Philippians, I was blameless. Because there's a man-made system over there. We're not talking about simply obeying God's law, but all the laws that go with it that people invent. Paul said, man, I was all over that. But then I realized I wasn't all over being saved because I'm truly wicked. And I am the chief of sinners when I'm really comparing myself to Christ and not my religion. And so, I'm going to keep saying it because there are two great errors. One is not being saved by grace through faith, obviously. And if you're in here and you go through this class, that is the last thing I want to be, I want to be absolutely clear. But I also want to do this because of Christians who get caught up in law morality. And Paul is warning us in all cases do not go back to the law. That's the whole book of Hebrews. Christ is better than the law. Christ is better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the temple. He's better than angels. He's better than all of that. He's better than whatever we can dream of. Do not go back. <coughs> Embrace grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and live in the joy of your salvation and realize that in that package you have the Holy Spirit who has promised you a birthright that you will persevere till the end. I'm confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's all part of the grace package. The grace package has incredible benefits. Regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, and sealing. Justification, redemption, reconciliation. All of that is in the grace package. The works package? Hell. It's a bad package. And don't sign up for that insurance plan. Bad insurance plan. All right. But what if I... No, don't do it. Okay, page four. You guys ready? Fun, fun, fun. Page four is a long section. I don't usually use 10 or 12 verses at once. But this whole part of the story is built on one basic principle, and that is this. We're still in chapter four, verses 13 to 25. God's promise, that is his covenant to Abraham, was given by grace... And received through faith. All right, so stay with the flow of the chapter, right? First part was Abraham and David were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, personally. For the law, under law. Check. And you can be saved that way too. Good. What we now have looked at through the David situation, we just looked at is, oh, and by the way, you can't be saved by these rituals. Check. Amen. What we're turning to now is a little more subtle. It requires a little more information. And if you're newer to this principle or concept, it's going to take a few minutes to, to embed. But it is this, that when God gave Abraham the promise in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, that he would have three things, that that promise was a promise, and it was not a covenant in the same way that he had to work for it. That is, God promised him a land, right, a seed, and a blessing. And those three things are part of the Abrahamic covenant or promise that this passage is talking about we're going to read. God told him, your descendants are going to own this land. Number two, you're going to have a seed, individual, who will come and be a blessing to all the world. But Christ would come through his line. 
He has promised to be the father of faith to the Messianic line. And it will be a blessing to all the nations. Well, those three things, were they given to him because he was working? No, they were given to him while he was asleep. Right? And we talked about last week. Uh, they anesthetized him. God put him to sleep. And in that, God made a covenant with him in which God went through the dead animals representatively and went through and made the covenant while Abraham was totally asleep. He did nothing to ratify the covenant. It was a blood covenant in which God did all the work. And so it's a picture to the new covenant. Jesus did the dying. It's a blood covenant. We did nothing to ratify the covenant. The new covenant is the extension of the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. They're the same thing. The new covenant through Jeremiah, inaugurated by Christ's death, is the promise to Abraham that while you're asleep, I'm going to have someone make a blood covenant. And how do we get the benefit of that? By believing it. Just like Abraham said, okay, I believe that, and Jehovah was credited to him to righteousness. So this is all in picture. But how was that covenant given? If you think it was given in conjunction with the law, that is, the people who received that are going to get it because they've been obeying the law. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul is addressing that question. How do you get the Abrahamic covenant? By faith. The whole covenant. Well, that would tell a person who is Jewish, are we going to get the land, the seed, and the blessing also? Not by works. Oh, we thought the law was how we were going to earn the right to have the covenant. So Paul is addressing that larger question. It requires some time. Okay, so now I read the text with that in mind. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That is being made right, justified by faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs to the Abrahamic covenant, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Okay, what he just said was, if you get to be justified by being through the law keeping, then there's no point in the faith side. That's what he's saying. For if all those who are in the laws are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. It doesn't say there's no sin. So don't get the idea that before the law, no one ever sinned. There was no written law that they were reading. Therefore, there was no violation of the written law. But Paul's already made the point in Romans 1, 2, and 3, but they were violating their conscience and they were without excuse in their behavior constantly. So sin was happening, but they didn't also have law signs that said, don't step on the grass. But they were driving their motorcycles on the grass constantly. But the law wasn't there, but their conscience was telling them, I probably shouldn't be doing this. Okay. Verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be accordance with grace, the principle, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Gentiles who believe get to be part of the promises of Abraham. That's why it says in Ephesians, the middle wall of partition has been broken down in the church through the blood of Christ. 
that we who were not part of the promises, who were alienated from the promises, Ephesians says, have now been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. And we're brought into the Abrahamic covenant. So we get the land, the seed, and the blessing in the life to come. It's beautiful. That is, God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, right? 99 years old? Well, actually at that time, no. 86, I believe. Verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100, I'm sorry, 99, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, because God had already told him, this is going to happen. But the older he gets, the more unlikely it looks. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who delivered our over because of our wrongdoings was raised because of our justification. Paul has now taken us on that journey into Abraham's life where he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. As I've outlined in orange, my favorite color at this point in my life for some reason, that five times he mentions the promise, right? It's the Abrahamic covenant. How was it absorbed by faith? How was it given by grace? It was accordant with grace that was given. That all makes sense, right? So here's the hard part. I must now take you on a journey into the Abrahamic covenant. We must go back in time and talk about the Abrahamic covenant. Why? Because this chapter mentions it five times and its principle of grace and faith and what it means to our future. I just want to say one more time here that regarding Abraham's faith, the quality of his faith, He knew it wasn't going to happen. At the same time, through him, at the same time he believed God. Hey friends, I just want to say, because this is both a narrative and a point of theology. Abraham was in the same position, and he showed us what it looks like, that we find ourselves constantly in as Christians. When I said at the beginning, I thought I would have been farther along by now. I'm really making the point that I was going to make here. After we become Christians and we read God's word and we get a sense of what God is doing in our life and we begin to understand our gifts and we start seeing God move and work in us and use us for teaching or discipling or counseling people or sharing or whatever God's using you in, you begin to have a sense of God's work in your life and you might even go through a really great season of that. You know, things are good. The Lord's working. I'm being used by God. And then God in his providence places you in the place of dark providence where you begin to say, I don't know how I got here and what just happened. And God has placed me in this time where the joy of the Lord is not complete and 
Where's God going with this? This is the question. And you know the promises of God about the future future. You're like, I know I'm going to heaven. But it seems like there's a time, sometimes, that God is no longer extending the presence of God, the joy of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. And if you look at your own heart, and I'm just doing this pastorally and we move on, you can look at your own heart in that season and realize, well, look, I'm a sinner, nothing's changed. But you can't, sometimes you can't find anything in your life you're like, I'm displeasing the Lord openly. I don't know what's going on. And Spurgeon talked about this quite a bit. I got my Spurgeon in. But he talked about this quite a bit because he went through bouts of depression, as many of you know. And Spurgeon used to talk about this whole idea of God's withdrawal, apparent desertion is what he called it. He has a book called The Saint and His Savior. It's my favorite Spurgeon book. And in it, he has just one chapter called Apparent Desertion. And from somebody we think of in such a brilliant light, it's an entire chapter of, where's God? It's David's Psalms on many occasions. David's like, Lord, where'd you go? What just happened here? I just want you to drill in that in your mind here with Abraham, that this is not just, oh yeah, then he did that. God promised him, and now he's 99 years old, and it's not happening. I don't know where the Lord has you, but we don't want to drive past that part of the story. Is The Abrahamic covenant was promised to Abraham, but it says in Hebrews that he died without receiving the promises. He didn't possess the land, He, right? Um, his seed, while he did have a seed, he didn't see multiple zillion nations out of his seed. He didn't see the promised Messiah. He didn't see blessings to all nations. So he did not receive what God promised him. So as C.S. Lewis said, and the ancient church father Irenaeus said about that, they both said, therefore God's going to resurrect Abraham and give it to him. Abraham's promises to him that he has not received is the beginning point of the conversation of, do the Jews have a future? Does God intend to give them the land, or is it, is it mystical? Oh, he gave them salvation, but the point is, does God have a kingdom land and a kingdom property and all that? Abraham is going to be raised from the dead, and he's going to be there. And we're going to sit, according to Jesus, at a table with Abraham in the kingdom of God. We're not talking about the eternal kingdom. We're talking about the temporal, earthly kingdom. I say all of that eschatologically. Some of you are like, whatever. The point of this passage is very clear. God's promises to Abraham and to his descendants was not based on how good they were. They don't live in law village. The Abrahamic promises are not over here. So as to say, if Israel sinned, they would be wiped from the scene and the church would replace them. Israel, the elect of Israel, are promised a future under the Abrahamic covenant and the revival of that in Romans 11, because we're going to get there in Romans 11. That's a lot to say. So let's dive into chapter, I mean, chapter four, page four in the middle. Man, I've got like 20 minutes. It's the best day of my life. A brief introduction to biblical covenants. What is a biblical covenant? A covenant is an agreement or a contract between God, between God and man between man and man, or between nation and nation. A divine covenant is two things. A sovereign disposition of God, whereby he establishes an unconditional or declarative impact with man, obligating himself in grace by the untrammeled formula 
I will, to bring to pass of himself definite blessings for the covenanted ones, or a proposal of God wherein he promises in a conditional or mutual compact with man by the contingent formula, if you will, to grant special blessings to man provided he fulfills perfectly certain conditions and to execute definite punishment in case of his failure. Stop there. La, 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 la. There are two kinds of covenants. Conditional, unconditional, right? Unconditional covenant, God says, I'll do this no matter what. The conditional covenant is, you do this. Next page. Um, you know that a conditional covenant, I'm sorry, an unconditional covenant can have conditions. The new covenant is like that, that we are under. The new covenant is unconditional in terms of you're going to get to heaven if you place your faith in Christ. It's unconditional. You're going to persevere till the end. God's going to preserve you. He's going to save you. But that was That's going to happen. But it's not a conditional covenant because of election. Uh, let me say it this way, Anne. And good, good point. But let me say it this way: that in, to be saved in Grace Village also means to be saved by grace, not just under grace. And by grace means that you were dead, Ephesians two, and it says, "But God in His grace resurrected you, and then He gave you the gift of faith." So even our faith is a gift, and therefore we did not earn it by our faith. Even. That's, a, that's a good point. So everything over here is a gift, including our response. And because we could not, that was the point. Yes, sir. Um, and I agree with what you just said 100%. Oh, then you can stay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, don't get too, don't get too. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't get too wrapped around it in the sense that uh, you have to look at God's, God's preaching the gospel to us. If you do this, then this will happen. It's absolutely true. If you believe, you'll have eternal life. But the Bible also says, because we just went through Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul says no one seeks God, no one understands, no one wants this. So we know the two things in Scripture together. The free offer of the gospel, and everyone will reject it, unless the bridge is built between. How do people who are dead and hate God and will not respond? Paul has told us that as an advance. But then the free offer is this. God must bring you from there to there. Even in his grace, Abraham's asleep. He has to bring him there. And so the story in Romans will continue to build. That That's why election will be discussed in this book. Paul will build the backstory of that and say, you know that your faith didn't even come from you. Your response was predetermined. They say, I'm a robot? No. Chapter 9, he, just, he deals with robot and fairness, the, the two Arminian questions. Uh, but that's Paul's building this huge order of salvation and backstory that we haven't gotten to. But the reality is, it is, if you will. But if does not imply you can. If you, if you will lift a 50,000-pound rock and move it over here, we'll think you're a superhero. You can't. Right. Yeah. So it's, Don. It's, would, it, would it be safe to say then that the if is not conditional, it's just showing results? So like, yes. if you're doing an experiment, if I combine this chemical with this, this result will happen. 
Well, what's going to happen if you read? Yeah. Um, now we're into the nuance of grammar, right? It's a good point, Don. No, it's a good point. When I said it's not a condition, you can't be saved without faith. Right? So it's a condition. But it's not a condition you can do. And it's not something that's meritorious, is really my point. Because we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Correct. Yeah. You're, whoever's going to believe. I'm going to go on because I have only 17 minutes. I'd be glad to address your questions afterwards. All right. Some covenant motifs in the Bible, page five at the top. Uh, you'll notice that some of these covenants you're familiar with, there's a salt covenant in the Old Testament. What's well, a salt covenant? That is not the weapons limitations between Russia and the United States, right? <laughs> salt one and two, okay. Uh, it's a salt covenant. It is sort of like we do at wedding things when you put the candles together or you put the thing, like sand, okay? The salt covenant was you take a little salt out of your pouch, I'll take a little out of mine. We'll mix them together, and therefore our covenant is unbreakable because we have mixed them together. can't even tell which side is mine anymore. Uh, the shoe covenant, super cool. Book of Ruth, a few other places, shoe covenant. Basically, if you give somebody your shoe, you're basically saying, I'm on the journey with you. We're in this together. I trust you. Here, I'm, You give me your shoe. It just gets awkward and smelly. But the point is, <laughs> it's a covenant. A verbal covenant is all over the Old Testament, right, and the New. People make covenants one another. And then the main covenant is blood covenants, as we described with Abraham and the New Covenant. Kinds of covenants, unconditional and conditional an unconditional covenant may have certain conditional blessings attached to it, which do not alter the unconditional nature of the covenant. Let me stop. In the new covenant, we are saved by grace through faith. We don't have to do anything in work village to get it. But you cannot enjoy the benefit package completely without working at it. What do I mean? Uh, that your your uh, your assurance of your salvation, joy, your sanctification. These are not just done by God; they're done by us working with God. They're called synergistic versus monergistic, and the principle is: if you don't read your Bible and pray, you're not going to grow as a Christian. God in this dispensation or this covenant, the new covenant isn't. Hey, I saved you, now I just, you're sanctified. Next. God has given means of sanctification. But they're not means of salvation, right? They're not means, don't call them means of grace if you can avoid it. There's no grace that flows out of those cups or the Bible or whatever. They're means of growth. But the point is, if we don't use the means of growth as a Christian, we're not going to grow so that's why it explains you've got some Christians who are really flying pretty high, and then you've got Christians like Doyle. <laughs> so you get, people are in between. And Paul talks about that as we've all been given different measures of grace. We'll get to that. But it is possible to have an unconditional covenant of salvation that is conditioning the sanctification part, and you can be a miserable Christian and still go to heaven. Right? You've seen people who otherwise, I don't mean they have no fruit, they have fruit. But it is possible for a, a real born-again Christian to be way under their grace line. To quench the spirit, Paul talks about. To grieve the spirit. They say, oh, no, no, oh, no, no. Uh, Christians, once they're saved, they're all going to, the trajectory is like that. 
No. Trajectory is like. And some more. Right? Every Christian does not leave the planet at the top of their game. But being a pastor um, and knowing my family, extended family, that Carla's extended family, where she has been with many Christians who have passed away with them at the moment, Christians die differently than unbelievers on the whole. If you've been in their presence when they die, there is something beautiful and substantial often, but not always overt. Some people are so medicated, you can't tell. But often there is a sweetness and a difference in those last part of the hospice point versus the unbeliever. And uh, it, there's a sweetness there. Uh, so I say all that. We're done. We're done. Let me pray for you guys. Well, Father, we thank you that what we have seen today is a, a beautiful picture of those things that David had his sins accounted to Christ and, and then his, the righteousness of Christ applied to him. We thank you that circumcision does not save and that we do not have to do special rites or become Jewish to be saved. But as the book of Galatians and Romans and other passages tell us, that we are saved by grace through faith that without circumcision, without the law, without the rites of Moses, without the festivals, without the special days. They didn't save anyone in Israel, and they're not going to save any Gentiles either. And it is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. And then, Father, thank you for this beautiful reality that the promises to Abraham that we in Christ enjoy will be ours not by law-keeping, but also because it was given by grace through faith. And we thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for this reminder. We ask that this week we live in the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we've been given accredited righteousness we did not earn, and that we walk out of here in the circle of your love and your protection. And may we live with joy for you this week, giving ourselves afresh to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.